For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Tulsa is reeling from a mass shooting at St. Francis Health System's Natalie Building on Wednesday. The incident resulted in the deaths of five people, including the shooter himself. This comes just after the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Neva, what are your thoughts on the mass killing? Well, obviously, it's a horrific event, uh, something that uh, I think stunned all Oklahomans. Um, But let's step back and and look at uh, kind of the scene itself. I think one of the things that struck me is it only took nine minutes for the um, first responders, uh, law enforcement, to be on the scene and to have actually made contact with the with the shooter who ultimately uh, killed himself and the victim. So uh, that rapid response, excellent uh, work on their part in a very uh, catastrophic scene. I think uh, uh, that I think it deserves noting, and I think. Uh, uh, certainly in the context of what the, the mayor, the uh, CEO of San Francis and others said uh, shortly after uh, the media arrived on the scene trying to communicate to the public at large what was happening, I think that uh, we have to give kudos to all of those folks for being uh, being prepared to do what needed to be done quickly uh, in an event like what took place uh, on Wednesday evening. Ryan. You know, it's just a, another act of gun violence. It's it's different in kind, of course, than, than what happened at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, um, uh, in kind. But, I mean, it is this uh, really strange point in America in 2022 that we've become so accustomed to gun violence that you know, I don't want to say that we're numb to it because I don't think any of us are numb to it. I uh, The number of tears that I've shed, uh, I know my wife has shed over uh, the children and the teachers that were murdered senselessly in Uvalde, um, the, the shock that we all felt whenever we started getting notifications last night on our phone. Um, it's, it's a, it's, it's sort of helplessness because really the idea that we're going to have any sort of policy response to this, uh, that does anything to actually curb violence, uh, and increase public safety, uh, seems remote, if not impossible. Uh, the idea that we all have gun control coming out of Congress. And even if we did have gun control coming out of Congress, I mean, I, Frankly, uh, as much as I want to see background checks uh, extended, as much as I want to see things like AR-15s not being sold, uh, there are you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of AR-15s already in circulation. You know, so, you know, even you know, huge buyback programs, could we ever get anything like that in America? Unlikely. Will it ever happen in Oklahoma? Almost certainly not. Um, so the, the long-term <laughs> policy fight that we're going to have is investing in mental health care, uh, which will pay dividends, but very long term into the future. Uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see something other than, you know, just gestures of, of sorrow. Uh, but I don't think policymakers are going to, you know, change course. And, and frankly, I don't think that even the kind of courses that would have to change for us to see real results in America or even on the table for most policymakers. You know, I think it's interesting when we talk about the need for change, the need for the conversation. I do think we are at a place where it would seem more possible to bring all of the all of the different competing interests, all of the folks that have different ideas uh, on gun control, gun ownership. I mean, the whole spectrum 
uh, <clears throat> to bring people together to try to have a conversation that would be a genuine conversation, not trying to get score cheap political points or get a headline, but but bring folks together and not to just have the pendulum swing back and forth uh, in a knee-jerk fashion. And so I think uh, it really sets the uh, sets the table for the possibility of bringing folks together if they're willing to do that. We cannot have one-dimensional conversations on this where everyone uh, speaking is intractable on their point of view and not willing to not willing to sit down and say, is there common ground where we can have the larger conversation about what is happening in our communities? Mental health, you're right, Ryan, is a huge component to this. I mean, we've talked about it. Uh, there was great conversation, a lot of experts uh, writing and talking about after the pandemic, uh, what would occur uh, as a result uh, that there would be this escalating mental health crisis in the country. Other countries have seen it as well. And so I think there are multifaceted conversations that need to take place and sooner rather than later. Well, Aniva, you talk about people changing minds or giving up positions. Here's something that maybe I've changed my mind on. Uh, and, and I'll probably betray some of my you know, commitment, uh, lifelong commitment to civil liberties here. But my, myself as a parent uh, of a you know, soon-to-be second grader, soon-to-be fifth grader, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking and thinking, why is it easier for me, why is it harder for me to get into the state capitol than it is to get into an elementary school? And I know that, you know, I hate the idea of hardening our schools and, and stuff like that, but we're not going to have policies that change. And so if we, I have to kind of, I've, as a parent, you're starting to recognize this is the reality. We've got a ton of guns out there. We've got a lot of mental illness out there. Um, you know, maybe the best thing that we can do is begin to harden some of these soft targets. Again, hate saying that out loud, and I, I may regret saying it a, a couple of weeks from now. But that's kind of where I'm at right now, uh, as as a parent. It's like you know, we've got to, we've got to take immediate, concrete steps right now to protect our most vulnerable people and our softest targets from these acts of violence. And 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 that protection is a difficult challenge because uh, every. Every venue is a potential challenge based upon that argument. I mean, whether you're walking in a mall, whether you're walking down the street, whether you're in your uh, church on Sunday morning or mm-hmm. synagogue, whether you are uh, in a school uh, as a child, a parent, a teacher. I mean, there are so many, so many components to this, but I think we have to step back and look at it in the broader context and not just try to use these incidents as tragic and absolutely senseless as they are uh, to just drive the conversation without looking at the big picture. Governor Stitt vetoed parts of the nearly $10 billion budget. The vetoes include $75 inflation relief payments to Oklahoma taxpayers and the elimination of a tax on vehicle sales. Stitt criticized his fellow Republicans for the tax relief and ordered them to return later this month in a special session. Ryan, I'm guessing these comments and the vetoes didn't go over well in the legislature. Well, absolutely not. And, you know, I think that um, as much as the vetoes surprised folks, I think the tone in which the vetoes, the veto message was delivered was the bigger shock. Um, You know, I was sitting at the Capitol on Thursday and, uh, you know, sitting in a a state senator or Republican state senator's office watching the uh, watching the uh, the press conference with the governor live, and I think that the shocking thing again was the the tone with which the governor was uh, making accusations that the uh, the legislature 
hadn't had a transparent budget process. And, and of course, it's no secret. Of course, it doesn't have a transparent budget process. This isn't new. I mean, the governor's been there for four years. And there, in his entire tenure, there was never a transparent budget process. During Governor Fallon's tenure, there was never a transparent budget process. Heck, going back to my, my, my old friend, Governor Brad Henry, mm-hmm. that wasn't a transparent budget process. It's just it's an Oklahoma tradition uh, of, of having... Uh, a non-transparent budget process. I wish that we could change that. You know, maybe we could have a budget-only session. You know, something that has more input from lawmakers because lawmakers on both sides uh, are kept out of these conversations. It's not just you know Democrats are kept out, which they're totally kept out. But most Republicans are out of the room as well, uh, and I get that. Um, but I also think that you have appropriations chairs that have done a, a very good job of trying to increase transparency. Uh, you know, Senator Roger Thompson in, in the Senate. Uh, and Kevin Wallace in the House have tried to increase transparency. And you could say that things are probably better now than they've been in a while. Uh, but it's a difficult process to have, you know, 100 plus people in a room and craft a budget if that's and you're doing that and passing other policies as well. Um, but, yeah, I, it is a uh, the, the bigger shock was that. And then you had, you know, Speaker McCall, who is usually you know, very reserved, uh, have a 30 minute press conference uh, where he talked about how disappointed he was in the in the governor, uh, suggesting that the legislature was controlled by special interest in its and lobbyists in their in its appropriations process. Um, you had a state representative, uh, Martinez, who was the one of the first lawmakers to um, uh, support Governor Stitt whenever he was running, question whether or not the governor had racist motives in some of the some of the bills that he'd vetoed earlier in the session dealing with uh, tribal government and tribal sovereignty and jurisdiction. Um, you know, so all of that was a, a kind of an intra-party uh, implosion uh, that happened that Friday, which uh, up until that week, you know, nothing had really, it was a really quiet week. They're out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. They came back last Thursday and Friday, and they came back for the specific purpose of being prepared to override vetoes. And that's what they did. I don't think that anybody thought that it was going to happen in the context of a kind of a, an all-out uh, verbal war between the legislature and the governor the way that it did, because there were really no indications in the weeks leading up to this that that was where the uh, the budget situation was heading. And he also compared the Republicans to President Biden. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, you, you call it a verbal war. I mean, it clearly was. I mean, when you have the governor say that, basically, I never expected the Republicans to take a page out of Joe Biden's liberal playbook. That's uh, like talking about somebody's mom exactly. to a Republican. I mean, those are fighting words. <laughs> and so, so to say that the speaker, uh, you know, was uh, going to take a, exception to that, I mean, he certainly... Um, I mean, I think when he talked about inaccurate and misleading uh, statements, uh, he also made it very clear that in due course they would address this. And I think, uh, I think it was. Um, you're right, Ryan. It was a surprise. I mean, everyone expected there were going to be veto. Uh, veto moves. Everyone expected that there would be veto override moves, but I think no one expected this kind of caustic tone. And the fact that you've got um, uh, you've got lawmakers who are in concurrent session, being called back into a special session, going to be around all summer and into the fall, dealing with the, uh, not only uh, the immediate issues of ARPA funds and other things, but with the backdrop not only of the primary June 28th. Mm-hmm but moving on into the political season for the fall and the general election. So I think um, I think when you, you see, it, the ir- irony also uh, was that you had the Democratic uh, leader, uh, Emily Virgin, I mean, basically saying that, uh, you know, she was glad to see the governor taking, uh, taking their side on the issue of uh, eliminating the state portion of the grocery tax, uh, mm-hmm. and, which has been their priority issue, or at least one of them uh, during, this, during this last election. Uh, 
legislative session. So uh, it's it's a it's a real mixed bag, and I think we're not going to see the end of it anytime soon, unfortunately. Well, you hit kind of an interesting point in that press conference. Uh, somebody asked Speaker McCall if he still planned on voting for the governor, and he didn't answer the question. I'm, you know, I I I fully <laughs> and expect that he votes for the governor, but I mean, what that's a that's a pretty big deal for a sitting speaker to not answer the question, am I voting for the incumbent well, governor and I think in the there, primary election? I think there's some questions. I mean, in this primary season, there's a lot of speculation right now. Will the governor come out against some of these incumbent legislators who have primaries? Uh, it hasn't happened yet. However, what did happen this week is that the governor endorsed Sean Roberts, uh, a term-limited uh, state representative who is now running for labor commissioner against the incumbent Republican Leslie Osborne. The governor came out. I think in my memory, I can't remember a time that a sitting governor has mm-hmm. endorsed against the incumbent in their own party. So this, I mean, while it hasn't really kind of bubbled up to the top and gotten a lot of attention yet, uh, the question I think in the minds of many of the Capitol insiders is, is this a precursor of things to come? And I think we'll just have to wait and see. But it certainly was a shot across the bow to many of these folks that are wondering, am I, you know, which side am I going to be on with the governor? And conversely, the governor is in a primary himself. And Mm so with every one of these actions, there could be consequences in terms of uh, uh, how the voters in the Republican Party feel about uh, this kind of give and take and what they think about uh, uh, who's right, who's wrong, and, and whether that will influence their vote on the choices they have for any of these races. While lawmakers chose to not take up Governor Stitt's veto on the budget, they did override several others. The six veto overrides include bills requiring the public Department of Public Safety to consider tribal court convictions and driving privileges and forcing financial disclosures from cabinet secretaries and agency heads. Neva, is the Republican-led legislature trying to send a message to the governor? I think they're trying to do what they believe is the proper course in terms of the legislation that they passed. So the governor took exception. He tried, he put his veto pin to them. The legislature came back and in strong measure said, no, we're going to override these votes. We're going to move forward. And so I think, again, the backdrop where you have 18 of these uh, uh, House uh, Republicans who are in primaries, uh, that certainly uh, is is one kind of piece to the, the overall conversation. But I think in the bigger picture, it is about the fact that they passed these bills, they wanted them uh, to become law, and the governor was not going to be the final say. They took it in their own hands as they have the, uh, as they have the prerogative to do. I think the other point is, I mean, the, there's this kind of give-and-take exchange that continues on about the fact that uh, the governor wants to talk about transparency, wants to talk about this budget mm-hmm. process, wants to suggest that, that, that he and his staff were kind of uh, iced out of the conversation. We hear that almost every session, that uh, by most people, People on the legislative side, if you talk to them, they say that's not true. Uh, what is true is that the governor didn't get everything he wanted, but lawmakers can also say they didn't get everything they wanted, and that's mm-hmm. part of this give-and-take process. But ultimately, it's for the legislators to decide there to hear what the governor sets up in the state of the state, move forward through the legislative session, pass legislation they believe is in the best interest public policy-wise for the state of Oklahoma. Ryan. Well, I think part of it is that uh, at least with uh, uh, House Bill 3501, the, uh, the, the tribe, you know, so what that what that bill would have done essentially is it would, would it allow and now it will allow it passed, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, with the override. So it is law now. 
but it allows the Oklahoma Department of Public Safety to revoke driver's licenses based on traffic offense convictions in tribal court. So if somebody gets a DUI uh, in, uh, in you know, Cherokee court, uh, that that DUI would apply to uh, your Oklahoma uh, driver's license. You know, so, and I think that that's something that we all want. I mean, we, you know, this, these are the kinds of agreements uh, that the state and tribes and municipal governments and county governments have been entering into for a very long time. And it's this cooperative nature. Uh, now, that has escalated quite a bit since the McGirt decision, this need to have greater cooperation whenever there's a recognition of tribal sovereignty and jurisdiction that the Supreme Court recognized in McGirt. But still, it's something that's been going on. There's a model for how this works. And this is, you know, the legislature kind of came to the table with the tribal governments, and they said this is how the state can cooperate with tribes and tribes can cooperate with states. And then the governor vetoed it. Um, and, it and it seems to be part of this pattern where the governor isn't going to give an inch on recognizing tribal sovereignty or the legitimacy of tribal governments. Um, and, you know, if the governor has real issues with the way that tribal courts operate, uh, with having you know, some consistency among tribal courts, uh, you know, transparency, whatever that may be, whatever those issues are, um, those are issues that I'm sure that tribal governments would be more than willing to talk to a good faith actor uh, about and negotiate about. Um, but whenever you have, you've taken the position that the governor's had, that he's just going to be, you know, uh, uh, you, know you know, I guess we assume against anything that would recognize the legitimacy and jurisdiction, that's, that's not a negotiating partner. And so the legislature kind of, you know, took this mantle up here and did that. Um, and, you know, I was not surprised to see that that was one of the first things that they overrode. Um, and then you had, you know, they brought up a couple of, they brought up the, uh, the, the rebate check and they brought that up, but then they voted it down. Uh, so the legislature didn't take action. Yeah, well, the legislature brought it up to, uh, to vote on it and then, uh, to override the veto, but then didn't override the right. veto kind of a, to sending a signal to the the governor, hey, we see you, uh, but <laughs> and and that may be, you know, on the the rebate check, you know, the thing where all Oklahomans, single uh, taxpayers, are going to get seventy five bucks, and then you know, married are going to get one hundred and fifty. Yeah, you know, I tend to agree with the governor here that you know most Oklahomans are going to look at that as an insult. I mean, that gets you barely, if if even a tank of gas right now uh, in in today's economy. Um, and that that's still going to be taxed on the federal end, so you were going to have even less than that at the end of the day. Um, you know, I I think that uh, the Senate didn't really want the rebate deal. That was a House deal, and so now that's going to you know if there's going to be some intra uh, legislative compromise that happens during the special session over the budget, it's going to be over you know what happens to that rebate rebate money because I don't feel like there's an appetite in the Senate and the House and even among some House members now where there was greater interest in the rebate program. I don't know that that's going to move forward. Uh, so there's going to be some question as to what happens to those funds. Well, there's even a story in the journal record that the $700 million that the legislature gave to the governor for the Panasonic deal might actually be in question as well as some lawmakers are starting to think, well, they've heard about the woke nature of Panasonic and they don't want it in the state. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, uh, I, I would be surprised if the, the lawmakers that signed on to that letter are calling on you know, Panasonic and the, and the governor and everybody to kind of you know, walk away from this deal because we don't want this kind of culture in Oklahoma. That's just ridiculous. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't like the Panasonic deal because I don't think we should be spending, you know, tax dollars, you know, in that amount to bring one company to the state of Oklahoma, regardless of kind of the job creation benefits that are allegedly out there. But even leaving aside, I mean, 
companies and corporations, I mean, uh, you know, it was, it, frankly, it was the conservative movement that won a Supreme Court decision that, corporate, that said corporations have speech rights. And so at the point that these <clears throat> corporations have political speech positions, uh, you know, the idea that the government could come in and then put uh, limits on, well, if you're going to you're going to accept this money from us if you're going to come work here well you can't advocate on behalf of your lgbtq uh employees in the state of oklahoma well, that's just i think that that's ridiculous um but i i do think that um the uh the money that one of the things that did come out of that press conference that the governor you know uh mentioned we talk about transparency paul monies i just kind of want to throw this out there oklahoma watch uh and other mm-hmm. other journalists uh, and other uh, media outlets had sued the governor uh, and OMES to get a release of the $18 billion of ARPA fund requests that had come into the state of Oklahoma. When he was asked about that, about transparency, he said, well, that just must have been a technicality. And a few days later, it was released, uh, which was kind of an interesting exchange because the governor said, well, we've released that. And Paul Money said, no, you haven't. We've had to sue you for that. And he said, oh, really? Okay, well, let me look into that. And a few days later, the documents are released. So uh, more press conferences, uh, and maybe we won't have to sue for open records violations. <laughs> you know, it's interesting talking about this whole give and take, not only on the budget, on these single issues that you just uh, just mentioned, Ryan, but the fact that Going back to Representative Ryan Martinez and his bill that uh, the governor, you know, basically um, um, through his, what Ryan described, what Representative Martinez described as a temper tantrum, uh, and then went on to say that, again, the governor was rejecting sound policy uh, proposals just because he had an emotional, you know, an emotional feeling about these tribal issues and continues to kind of throw that out there in the in the in the public arena. So I think every time these exchanges happen, uh, particularly during this summer when we have this ongoing session, the ongoing possibility of continuing to retool uh, some of these um, money issues in particular, um, is just putting it, it's it's putting a very difficult uh, challenge, I think, on the process. I mean, it makes it it makes it a a time when the public uh, becomes, I think, confused largely about what's going on in this give and take and up and down and who's on first. And they need to get past that and get into a a better place where they can come into the building and take care of the people's business. And as the speaker himself said, I mean, the legislators don't work for the governor. They work for the people of Oklahoma who duly elected them in their individual districts. And I think that should be the tone that they set when they come back in uh, next week in the special session. Legislation signed by Governor Stitt puts a moratorium on new medical marijuana licenses. Any Oklahoman wanting to start a new grower, dispensary, or processor business must apply before August 1st or wait two years. Ryan, what is the reaction from the medical marijuana industry on this new law? Yeah, I think everybody kind of walked into this legislative session, you know, thinking that the uh, legislature was going to try to make some moves to maybe not scale back, but try to get the medical marijuana program under control. Now, people have different definitions of what under control means. Uh, you know, there's there are all these all these reports about ballooning numbers of uh, commercial licenses in the state of Oklahoma. Well. We really, until this week, when Metric, the seed-to-sale program that uh, all 
uh, business licensees have to use to track Oklahoma medical marijuana product from seed to sale. Uh, until that came online, and was man- we had mandatory compliance this week, which was delayed for over a year because of mm-hmm. litigation from folks within the uh, marijuana industry. Some you know small subset of folks within the marijuana industry that didn't want to have their product traced. You know they didn't want to comply with this pro- uh, th- with this uh, program. You know that in and of itself, once that's online and fully implemented as it is right now, over the next few months, I think we'll see a lot of folks walk away from licenses, not because the regulations are pushing people out of business, but because a lot of these licenses have been inactive. Uh, One of the things that we haven't really been able to know about medical marijuana in the state of Oklahoma right now, because we don't have real tracking, is how much is being produced, how much is being consumed, where is it going? And so now that we're going to have that, and and how many of these licenses are actually doing nothing? Um, You know, because even right now it's all written report up, up until you know metric was mandatory it was written reports that folks submitted in various formats to oma is very difficult to compile data uh that's no you know uh, strike at oma they're doing a, a fantastic job with Im- implementation here but the uh the moratorium the big surprise with the moratorium i think was that it was delayed to august 1 because most folks had been saying if you're going to have a moratorium and you want it to be effective in controlling the number of licenses that are out there uh, you've got to, you know, it's got to be an emergency clause. It's got to be effective immediately because what we're going to see is, you know, the people that either want licenses or people that already have licenses, but want to expand between now and August one, they're going to get applications in and they're going to be ready to go. Um, I also want to make clear too, and, you know, full disclosure, I, uh, you know, senior consultant on the state question 820 campaign, um, the 820 state question 820 for the first 24 months, uh, if it passes, only individual businesses, only businesses that have medical marijuana business licenses can apply uh, for adult use or recreational business licenses. Um, and so this isn't going to affect that at all. Uh, the moratorium isn't going to prohibit, would not prohibit the ability of um, uh, somebody that's got a medical marijuana dispensary mm-hmm. license from then applying for a medical marijuana adult license. So that's, that's not going to change anything. And you know, if if the uh, if OMA gets to the point where they feel like they want to scale this back, this is supposed to go to August uh, 1, 2024, but Director Adria Berry could potentially say we're going to end the moratorium early. And that may possibly happen, especially once we start to get things under control with seed to sale and metric coming online. Neva. Well, I think, I think that's right. She's left the door open <clears throat> that uh, once they determine that all of the pending license reviews the appli- the inspections all the investigations are complete then they could they could in fact uh, end that moratorium or a little earlier i think the takeaway from this really for most oklahomans is the fact that what this does is it allows the opportunity to go after the bad actors. It allows the opportunity to get a real a real foothold on what's going on in the medical marijuana industry in Oklahoma and get it under control. I mean, it kind of came out of the starting block so fast, you know, and everything was catch up in terms of compliance and rules and reviews and the process. And as a result of that, uh, I think the uh, legislature was wise in this move to make sure that they can get a real handle on it, particularly if we're looking at the prospect of a ballot uh, issue in November uh, and the prospect of potentially voters saying uh, that they may or may not want full-blown legalized marijuana. So um, it, it it is timely, and I think uh, they are taking a very thoughtful approach, it would appear, from everything that uh, that they've said and done to this point. Well, and I think a lot of things happened with regard to marijuana policy at the Capitol. Uh, the, the tone throughout February was very aggressive. I mean, I think that you saw a lot of lawmakers in February ready to just end the whole thing. Um, and 
when the uh, Oklahoma County District Court uh, lifted the temporary restraining order and allowed metric to move forward with implementation, mm-hmm. and lawmakers saw that there was going to be this three-month a, a period where folks could get into metric and we actually have seed to sale tracking and compliance uh, in Oklahoma and, and allow OMA to really do true enforcement actions and accountability the way that uh, that's the most important tool that they have for enforcement and accountability is the seed to sale system. And so I think once lawmakers saw that that was really coming and really going to happen, uh, you began to see you know much more modest and targeted uh, efforts at, at reining in uh, the medical marijuana program in the state of Oklahoma. So that's where you see like this moratorium. They're very modest fee increases. Uh, most, you know, quote unquote, you know, mom and pop operations, the smaller operators rightly will not have any uh, fee increase. And if they do, it's going to be a very, you know, minimum fee increase. Mm-hmm. And then there are some other things that happen that, you know, are favorable to operators in the state of Oklahoma as well. So I think, you know, in the, in the, in the long run, this legislative session, you know, started out, it could have been a very dark session for the medical marijuana industry. And I think we're, we're walking out uh, into a, a different sort of situation now where there's hope that OMA is really about to get things under control. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KLSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KLSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KLSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at klsu.org.